0: be talking about spiritual abuse in this session. I hope you understand that Gary Dameron took his topic to room A. So if you wanted that topic, he's in room A on testing. Uh, We're going to talk about spiritual abuse in this session. So if you got in the wrong session, you're welcome to, uh, to slip into the other one. We're going to be talking about a chapter in Caring for the Emotionally Damaged Heart entitled Spiritual Abuse in this session, and we're going to seek to understand what is spiritual abuse, how do people get damaged, and that's what we're going to talk about in this session. Why don't we open in a word of prayer as we begin? Father, we're thankful for just the privilege of being able to share this session together. Thank you for each of these um, wonderful people that have chosen to spend the time in this session, and I pray that you would bless our time, give us just a sense of your presence, and I pray that we would understand this topic and be able to minister to people in a way that you designed for us to, In Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago... My secretary came to me and said, my neighbors separating in their marriage, uh, I don't really want them to get a divorce, would you see them? I said, sure, you find a place on the schedule and I'd be glad to meet with them. So they came into my office and um, he immediately says, you've got to save my wife. She won't accept Christ as her savior. She won't believe that Christ died on the cross for her sins, would you save her? I never had anybody say that to me before, and I was a little bit shocked uh, by the pressure. Um, But I introduced myself, and we prayed, and we began the session, and I began to ask her a question. Could you tell me about your home background? And she shared the fact that she was raised in a non-Christian home, and at age four, her father had accepted Christ. And so every Sunday, he would leave for church, but the children and the mother would stay home because the mother was not a Christian, but the father was a Christian. And each Sunday, the father would come home and sit at the dinner table and say to the mother, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you're going to hell. Do you understand that? When are you going to get saved? And the father would attack the mother and pressure the mother to get a right relationship with God. I knew right away what the problem was, but then she went on to say, after Sunday dinner, mother would go to her bedroom and uh, be on the floor in a fetal ball, and as a four-year-old, she had to go pick mother off of the floor and care about mother every Sunday, and it would take her two hours to get her encouraged enough uh, to get off the floor and come and be a part of the family. I knew what had happened. The mother was struggling with rejection, depression. The father had stepped on the mother's pain using spiritual pressure. And the mother had locked up and the daughter had locked up. And her view of God had been distorted. With a result that she couldn't receive Christ. I led her in a little prayer. It was very simple. Jesus, uh, when I was a little girl, my daddy would come home and pressure my mom to receive Christ, causing my mom to feel rejected and attacked and criticized, causing me to emotionally lock up. Jesus, can you draw a picture of my heart damaged by that? Jesus, how would you heal my heart? Jesus, are you like my dad to yell and attack people and make people Relate to you, are you different? How are you different? And in the process of that very simple prayer, the girl's heart was healed by Jesus. She opened her eyes and says, "Um, I have two million sins. I didn't say that, she said that. What do I do with them? I said, we were just talking to Jesus. Let's go back and ask him. So I bowed my head and she bowed her head. Jesus, what do I do with two million sins? And she knew enough about the gospel. She recognized that Jesus Christ died on the cross and Jesus showed her a picture of the cross with him taking her sins on himself. And Jesus says, all you need to do is call on me, and believe that I died for you, and by faith believe, and you'll be a Christian. I said, what did Jesus prompt? And she told me, and I says, would you like to make that decision? Now, you never force a person into a decision to receive Christ. You always invite them. And out of love, you care for their hearts. So I asked her, would you like to do what Jesus is prompted you to do, to call on him, to believe, to by faith trust him in his death on the cross? She says, yes, I'd like to do that. So I led her in a prayer and she received Christ. As soon as we were done, she says, well, now I can get baptized, can't I? What had happened was they were in a church where the pastor counted numbers through baptism and he wanted to get the church to 500 in one year, which means he had to be baptizing a bunch of people every Sunday. Well, what happened was she wouldn't get baptized because she wasn't a Christian. And so the pastor pressured her to receive Christ. her husband had pressured her to receive Christ, and she was locked up because of that four-year-old pain. So she went back to her pastor and says, "I receive Christ, now I can get baptized." So two weeks later, on a Wednesday night, she was baptized. My wife and I were invited to the baptism, so we went. We knew no one else but that couple. The pastor was just coming into a church he'd been given for a dollar. It was a church that was as large as this church. I wish someone would give me a church for a dollar. No one's ever offered that to me, but anyway. uh, I never had those kind of gifts, but he had received that gift. He, in Pueblo, Colorado, had ran a church from zero to 500 in three years, and so they gave him this church for a dollar and says, okay, see if you can do it in Colorado Springs. So he was really adamant to get people baptized. So in the first half of the Wednesday night, he says, now the former people that were in this church probably contaminated this church, so we need to make sure that every room in this church is clean, so we're going to go and pray through every room in this church. So he preached 30 minutes on cleansing the old people's problems out of the church. Um, so I listened, and it was interesting. I don't know what his text was. I don't remember it. I don't think you can find it in the Bible. Then he turned and says, "Baptizer." So somebody put her into the water in the baptistry, and she got wet. And um, then she came back into the auditorium with her husband, and he says, okay, now we're going to split up and go to the different places in this building and we're going to um, cleanse the church. I didn't know who to go with. So I went with a pastor and the couple that got baptized, it was the only person I knew in the church, and we were to go to all the rooms and back of the church. Now, this church had been there for 35 years, so there was a lot of Christmas decorations and I prayed God's cleansing for all the dusty christmas decorations in one corner back in that corner of the church that was my prayer (laughs) pray that god would i don't know how god took all the dust off of those decorations but anyway that's what i prayed for and on the way through the door like that door coming back into the auditorium the lady says can i introduce you pastor to the person who led me to christ and all she got was a grunt She never even had the opportunity to introduce my wife and I to the pastor. He didn't care. He got his number. He was getting to 500. He didn't care about him. Now, the girl had been spiritually abused once at age four by a father who used anger and criticism to introduce Jesus to her. And her view of Jesus was distorted by an angry father, a critical father, Secondly, she was spiritually abused by a pastor who didn't care about her. He only cared about his numbers. He had to get a church to 500, and he had to get people wet to do that. He wasn't interested in her relationship with God. He was only interested in the baptism of that person. He didn't care. Now, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't have, you can just listen. Uh, Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31 to 34. In this passage, God is talking to the shepherds of Israel, the spiritual leaders of Israel, and he makes some fantastic um, statements. A little overwhelming when you read this. But God is talking to the spiritual leaders that are supposed to be the individuals who are leading Israel spiritually, when in reality, they're not leading spiritually. They're not doing proper spiritual leadership. In verse 31, And they came unto him as the people come, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, and they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but with their heart uh, goes after covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do not do them. In verse 34, verse 2, in the middle of the verse, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not shepherds feed the flock? The question here is the people were feeding themselves. They weren't feeding people spiritually, and he's talking to the spiritual leaders. There are four conditions in chapter 34 that Ezekiel talks about. The sheep um, have issues, and the shepherds are not ministering to the sheep's needs. The first issue uh, in chapter 34, verse 4, is the people were sick and the shepherds were to heal the issues that they were struggling with. But instead of healing them and strengthening them, they were not focused on sick emotional people. Secondly, there were broken people uh, that they were to bind up. But instead of caring for them, They were caring for themselves. The third thing it says is there were people who were scattered. And they were to bring those people back. Um, But instead of bringing them back, they ignored those people who were wondering. Verse number four, there were people lost. They were to seek those who were lost, but they weren't there. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Ezekiel shares three things the shepherds were doing. They were not caring for the sick, the broken, the scattered, the lost. They were forcing their people with cruelty. They were severe with people. And they were dominant, controlling people. So there are three things in this passage the Bible warns leaderships leaders not to do as shepherds of God's people, not to force them, not to be severe, and not to be dominant. Those three things emotionally damage people spiritually because you never pressure a person to receive Christ. You never pressure a person to resolve spiritual issues. You lead them. And you never use force or cruelty or severity The failure of the shepherds in this passage is they fail to search for the sheep. They fail to meet the needs of the sheep. And they fail to know where their sheep were. And they fail to feed the sheep spiritually. You can identify the issues as two issues. Shepherds are to meet sheep's needs. Whatever those needs are, they're to care about those. Shepherds are to feed sheep. A shepherd took the sheep to grass that they could graze on, not to rocks that didn't feed them. So the shepherds in Ezekiel's day were not caring for the needs of the sheep, neither were they focused on feeding the sheep. They were focused on themselves and they were focused on Temporal things instead of the sheep. In verses 2 through 5 of chapter 34, uh, verses 2 and 3 indicates the fact that they were feeding themselves, not the flock. They were concerned about themselves. Secondly, verse 4, they never healed anyone. They never cared about anyone's issues. Thirdly, they never sought those driven away. Uh, Jesus shared the opposite in his story. A shepherd had a hundred sheep. One sheep went astray. The shepherd leaves the ninety-nine sheep and goes for the one lost sheep. A parallel to this passage, Jesus sought that one lost sheep. So he went to the person who was blind. He went to the person who who was caught in adultery? He went to Zacchaeus, who stole from everyone. He ministered to individual needs of people. The third is he never—they uh, never sought those driven away. They left the sheep to die. They didn't care about the, the sheep that wandered or were driven away, and that's in verse four, the last half. And in verse 4, the last part, they ruled with cruelty. They had no loving, tender care for sheep. Now I'm going to be honest with you, and I appreciated what James just shared earlier. People are no different than sheep. My father raised cattle. And one time he decided to buy 12 head of sheep to keep the yard clip down so we didn't have to mow it. And those sheep only stayed around for about six weeks because my dad was used to using the whip on cattle. And you use a whip on sheep, <laughs> you're in trouble. You lead sheep, you don't chase sheep. And we were used to chasing cattle. And there's a huge difference between how you deal with cattle and how you deal with sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. People have tender hearts. One out of four people coming into my office has the pain of rejection and depression and struggling with acceptance. That's not the national average. That's just what comes into my office. And people are insecure. And God designed pastors, spiritual leaders... Maybe we could say Sunday school teachers include other people. Um, James talked, talked about elders. God wants mature spiritual people to minister to other people who have needs and care about those needs. And that's what Ezekiel, God, is talking about here. Are the spiritual leaders, the shepherds of Israel, caring for the people? God saw they weren't. Now, it didn't change much when Christ came because Christ's greatest condemnation came to the spiritual leaders that weren't doing anything about people's spiritual needs. He told the Pharisees and scribes, you're driving people away from God instead of leading them to God and a relationship with him. Interesting statement. Some of Christ's harshest statements were made to spiritual leaders. Why? Because the spiritual leaders were not accomplishing what God designed for them to accomplish. In chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, God is going to seek those sheep that the shepherds were ignoring. Let me just read those two verses For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. God cares about sheep. Now, I had the privilege with my wife of pastoring for 23 years. I wish I would have understood some things better. I would have done some things different if I started over in ministry. In the church, um, I was really encouraged to be a good Bible teacher, and I focused on that, taught the Bible exegetically. I was taught to emphasize missions and We gave a lot of money to missionaries so that they could go out and share the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. Um, We focused on basically those areas of evangelism, missions, and Bible teaching. There was an area that I think the church has been negligent in, as I view generally the church, not your church, because you're probably doing this, and that's caring about the issues people struggle with inside their heart, the emotional issues. Now, most most of us had our families come from Europe, and Europe and Rome, Italy, uh, Germany. Those people were intellectual. Everything is about knowledge, And our culture has neglected the emotional part of the heart. Jesus focused on the heart of people. Yes, he was intellectual, but we have to have a balance between the head and the heart. And Jesus cared about the hearts of people. Most of the time, churches are focused on getting people saved, bringing them into right relationship with God focusing on missions and focusing on Bible teaching, but we've neglected one aspect, and it's probably the most important part, and that's the heart. Above all that is kept, keep your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence, Proverbs says. What does that mean? As pastors, we need to focus on the heart of the person to understand, care about what's happening inside because a high percentage of the people sitting in our local churches are struggling. Some are struggling. I don't know if I've ever accepted Christ. I don't know if I'm a Christian. They're struggling with, do I have a relationship with Jesus? That's a hard issue. Others are struggling with the pain of rejection, the pain of abandonment, the pain of being criticized and We need to care about those pain issues in people's lives because they're never going to mature spiritually if they're struggling with all those issues inside. And if I was a pastor again, which I probably never will be, I would focus on the gospel, sharing the gospel, making sure everyone understands the importance of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for everyone's sin, And by faith, you can call on the name of Jesus Christ and experience salvation. And you can know in your heart today that you're a believer, that you're going to heaven when you die. That assurance is critical. Secondly, I would focus on teaching the word of God so that they can mature. Thirdly, I'd focus on missions to make sure that the church is reaching out. And fourth, I wouldn't put it fourth, I would focus on caring about what people struggle with in the church. I would make sure that they're understood. So if they're struggling with feelings of rejection, they're struggling with the pain of a childhood experience that they can't get over, namely sexual abuse or any other abuse, that we're caring about those four issues. I think those four things are the responsibility of the church. And in this passage in Ezekiel, God identifies that issue. Now, as spiritual leaders, we are the shepherds of God's people. We have the responsibility of understanding those sheep and caring. And sheep are very insecure animals. People are very insecure and when you go to their heart, all of a sudden you find out what is really happening inside. And you're going to find some very insecure people in your church. When I was pastoring in Colorado Springs for 11 years, I counseled people from 11, 12 churches in town. And uh, they would call and ask if they could come and see me. And I would allow them time in my schedule and they would come and I would counsel them. Often pastors would, I I would share with them the kind of cases I was counseling and they would say, John, you really have bad people in your church. I don't have those kind of people in my church. What they didn't know, they were people from their church. Because an intellectual pastor talking to another person intellectually, how are you doing? Fine. Fine would never know what was going on inside their people's hearts. I had one case where I was very busy as a pastor, and he says, can I just share with your pastor what you're struggling with and let your pastor continue this counseling? And the couple says, don't you dare say anything to our pastor about our problem. He's intellectual. He would never understand our problem, and he would never care anyway. Now, when a person comes into my office on Monday and I spend three hours each day with them, I always find they respond intellectually on the first day. And you ask them, Tell me about your home. I came from a beautiful Christian home. I had neat parents. My dad was neat. My mom was neat. Uh, Had neat siblings. We had a lot of fun. Uh, We played games together. On Wednesday, it's almost like the story changes because I'm in my heart as a counselor, and all of a sudden the person says, My dad only worked. He never had time for me. He was always critical of me, and he had high expectations of me, and I could never meet him. And emotionally, I've struggled all my life meeting others' expectations. All of a sudden, the story changes on Wednesday. That happens every week. Because in our culture, we're not used to talking in our heart. We're used to talking in our head. Now, a pastor, a shepherd, needs to know the sheep. If a a shepherd just looks over his sheep and say, they're all fine. I have a son that has to take care of 650 cows. And every February, 650 cows calve. And he has to go out every two hours, every night, every day, and check his cows to see if they're okay. Now, he watches... If something's wrong with a cow, and he can tell something's wrong with a cow that's calving um, very rapidly. Now, I can't, but he can. And he's observant because if something's wrong inside of a cow that's calving, he better get out there and start working to make sure that everything goes right. In the same way, a pastor can look over his congregation and everybody's got their ties on, everybody's got their suit coats on, everybody looks great on Sunday. I have a great church until you sit down with one of your individuals in your church and say, are you struggling with anything today? What's happening inside? Is there something you need for me to encourage you with? All of a sudden you're going to find pain and I'm going to say you're going to find pain in every person in your church. Some of them are spiritually damaged. Some... Are emotionally damaged. Some are struggling with sin issues. Some are struggling with emotional pain that they can't talk about. Now, you can judge those individuals and say, You shouldn't be sinning. You shouldn't have emotional pain. You shouldn't feel rejected. Or as a shepherd, you can walk beside your sheep and say, I want to know what's happening because I want to help you with that. I want to care. For what you're struggling with, in First Thessalonians chapter five, verses fourteen and fifteen, God says that spiritual leaders have four, responsibi- four responsibilities. First Thessalonians five fourteen and fifteen, to warn the unruly, the disorderly. So, if someone's doing something that's sin, that's wrong. The spiritual leadership, the shepherd, has a responsibility to um, assist them in resolving that issue. Uh, to warn me is a military term, which means um, those out of rank, out of step, are to be um, warned. You're to bring it to their mind so that they walk properly. Secondly, we're to comfort the faint-hearted. These are the emotional pain individuals. The word faint-hearted is a Greek word which means little soul. We're to put together people who have little souls, people who are struggling emotionally. James talked about the people who never grow up because of the emotional pain. It's these individuals who are struggling emotionally that we want to encourage Those that do not have emotional fortitude were to comfort, soothe, console, encourage. That's the responsibility of a shepherd, based on what Paul says. The third is to uphold the weak, the feeble, the sick, the ones with no strength, the ones with no energy. There are many people who have just given up on life, they have no strength, they have no energy. They can't stand up on their own. They need someone to help them. Recently, I got a call from a a lady, and she said, um, my sister's in a mental hospital. She's been disciplined by the church because she has depression. And uh, she said, uh, I'm not allowed to talk to my sister. If I talk to my sister, who lives two hours away from me, I will be disciplined and put out of the church. What would you say if you were a counselor and someone called you and asked the question? I said, you have to make a decision, the Bible says, that we're to uphold the weak, we're to comfort the faint hearted. That's the responsibility of spiritual leaders. A person that's depressed will not stay depressed if someone is caring about their emotional pain. And based on my message the other morning, if you identify what's caused that depression and you care about that, they will lose their depression. And only 5 to 10% of depression is caused by chemical imbalance. Now, church discipline has never cured depression. Because church discipline produces rejection, more pain. Okay, so you're never going to fix depression by uh, telling a person or putting them out of the church or disciplining them for their depression. The Bible says we're to uphold the people who are weak. That's the responsibility of the shepherds, the pastors, those in spiritual responsibilities over people. Fourth, we're to be patient with everyone. The word patient is the term translated long-tempered. Be patient because sheep sometimes take a while to heal. Sometimes sheep run astray and be patient, bringing them back. Now let's talk about spiritual abuse. What is spiritual abuse? I wrote this definition a couple years ago. Spiritual abuse is communicating who God is or his truth in an unloving or damaging way that destroys a person's ability to respond in relationship with God. In other words, I'm taking the word of God, his truth, and I'm communicating it in a specific way that locks a person up where they can't pray, they don't want a relationship with God, and they're damaged in their relationship with God. The Bible, Jesus Christ, is to be presented in love for people to choose to respond to, not to be forced to believe. I have found that when you love people, you care about people, they respond God's Truth. I'll never forget a man from Iowa. He was a corn farmer. And he had a depression problem and a rejection problem because his father was angry and dominant, perfectionistic. And he'd gone to the doctor with high blood pressure and that doctor says, you better sell your farm because if you don't sell your farm, you'll never see your grandkids because you're going to die before you see your grandkids. So he sells his farm. He keeps the farmstead, the barn, and the house, and sells everything else off. And he's sitting at home watching TV six hours a day. His wife's working, and um, he's on disability. I was invited to a little friend's church in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. And um, the pastor's daughter in that church had a friend in school who was the daughter of this man. And um, the pastor's daughter invited her little girlfriend who was eight years of age to come to church with her. So the friend asked her daddy, Daddy, will you take me to this little friend's church? My girlfriend wants me to go there and they have a special speaker and um, I'd like to go and be with my girlfriend. So the daddy says, okay, I'll take you to this little church. So he's sitting there. He doesn't go to church. He's sitting there and... Listening, and he hears my story of pain, why I was depressed, and he realized his story and my story paralleled. And he called my office and scheduled an appointment. And he came into the office, and um, he was sitting there in my office. And I asked him to tell me about his story, and he told me about his father, how he'd been damaged. He told me about his father's anger, his dominance, and all the pressures put on him, and his anxiety that was happening inside of his heart. And I asked him for the pain that caused him. And I saw he was so intensely in pain that I decided I'm not going to let him sleep one more night in his pain. So I said, do you mind if I lead you in a prayer to see if we can disconnect the pain you just described? And he says, no, I'd be glad to let you do that. So I led him in a little prayer. Jesus, uh, I'm really struggling My father had high expectations of me and I could never meet him and I've been attempting all of my life to meet his expectations and never done that. He was angry and critical and my heart shut off. Jesus, can you draw a picture? of My heart damaged. And he saw a picture of steps, tall steps, and a little boy, 18 months old, trying to climb those steps and he couldn't climb them. Jesus, are you like my dad, with high expectations? Or are you different? How are you different? And he saw Jesus reaching a staff down like a shepherd, and helping him up each step. And I says, "What is Jesus showing you?" And he says, "Stop, stop, stop! The little boy's not at the top of the steps yet." And I said, "Okay, I'm sorry." <laughs> He was into his picture, obviously. And I waited 10 minutes, and he says, okay, he's got to the top of the steps now. Now, this is a 60-year-old man. Jesus, do you care about me? And he saw Jesus at the top of the steps weeping. He had no relationship with God. Jesus do I have an intellectual relationship with you or a heart relationship with you? All of a sudden, he was praying with his eyes closed and his eyes open. He looked at me and he says, I have neither. I said, would you like a relationship? He says, well, yeah. That's why I'm here. I said, what kind of relationship would you like to have? An intellectual relationship where you believe in him? Did he die for you or would you like to have a heart relationship? Well, I might as well get the whole thing. <laughs> He's a farmer from Iowa. Jesus, I'd like to give you my heart and I'd like to receive you into my life. I led him and he followed me. Everything changed about that man. Because I spent the first three hours with him alone... Uh, His wife is sitting there watching. She was Roman Catholic background and went to church every Sunday. He um, he left, went back to the motel, and she got upset and went to the first Roman Catholic church. She could find and yanked on the door, and it was locked. She got mad, went back to the motel, thought her husband would be watching TV for six hours, which he did every day and didn't do anything around the house. Instead, he was sitting on the bed waiting for her to come and He wanted to care about her heart. I never told him to do that. And she couldn't relax to be cared for. She had never responded to love. The next day she came in and says, I'm mad at you. I said, Why are you mad? You cared about my husband and ain't gotten three hours yesterday what it took me 30 years in the Catholic Church to get. I says, I'm sorry. I can only do one side at a time. Why don't I focus on what you're struggling with today? her to Christ she had an intellectual understanding of the gospel but had never understood that in her heart now I share that story because here was an individual no one never taken the time to care about his heart a month later he called me and he says I went back to my doctor and he asked what had happened to me my blood pressure was down And I says, well, I went to Colorado and this guy made me confess everything that I'd ever done wrong and um, basically took me all apart and cleaned me all up and put me back together. And the doctor says, I don't know what he did, but your blood pressure is gone. Your high blood pressure is gone. He says, I got 30 people I'm going to send from Iowa to Colorado to get their blood pressure straightened out. Okay, that's a farmer from Iowa. Now, let me just say this. People... If you care, respond. I never share the gospel on Monday. I care about the emotional needs of people on Monday. And by Wednesday, they see somebody caring about their heart. And all of a sudden, they want to know, I lost 300 pounds yesterday because you led me to forgive those individuals. And I've often said, all the prayers in these books work for anyone, including non-Christians. The only difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is a non-Christian doesn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But both a non-Christian and the Christian have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Which means a non-Christian can be convicted of his bitterness or his pride. So I can lead anybody through any of these prayers, whether Christians or not Christians. When they feel freedom, they'll all of a sudden say, this works. And immediately they ask, how do I have a relationship with God? And it's an easy way of leading people to Christ because you deal with their bitterness, you deal with their emotional pain, and all of a sudden, they're pressuring you for relationship with Jesus. They don't know how to get it, so you have to explain it, rather than saying on Monday, I won't counsel you unless you're a Christian. You have to be a Christian first. I would lose 90% of the cases that are not Christian if I went that way. I've often said, these prayers work for everybody but monkeys. You can't get a monkey free. But every person created in God's image was created to pray. Every person created in God's image was created to know when they're struggling, you go to Jesus. There's a source of peace, and God has printed that on every person's heart. If a tornado came across the field today... Everyone, including agnostics, would pray within a second. That's why after 9-11 happened, everyone in America was praying. Now, we put prayer out of schools. But as soon as a tragedy happened and 3,000 people died in a matter of minutes, all of a sudden, everybody's praying. Now, everybody's not praying again. Now, we've got to have another tragedy to get people to pray. It took 3,000 people dead to get this nation woke up spiritually. You see the problem? So when you're counseling, acknowledge the fact that everyone is going to be praying. Everyone was created in God's image to pray, and they know that experience. So I don't have any problem saying to an unsaved person, would you like for me to help you resolve the emotional pain that you just shared? If you follow me, you're going to lose 80% of your pain that you're feeling. Now, nobody believes me on Monday. I tell them that. Because everyone thinks, I'm not going to get rid of my pain. What makes you think you can get rid of my pain? I can't do it. But I can lead you to someone, Jesus, who can heal your heart. In 16 years of doing this, I've only had two individuals that didn't receive Christ using this method. It works. Because everybody wants to be loved by someone. And when I start loving someone, they start responding. If I introduce them to Jesus, who's loving, they respond. Now, let's move on to what is spiritual abuse. There are five ways people are damaged spiritually. And you have your outline there. Um, <clears throat> Number two, we're on the outline, so if you want to jot these down, you can. The first way is to use God or scriptures to control people through guilt. God won't love you if. In other words, if you use guilt or dominance, people are going to react when you use truth. Now, no one reacts when you teach the Bible in love. When you counsel in love, people respond. If you use God's truth to try and control people or to put a guilt trip on people, they will emotionally shut down. I would challenge you to study the Gospels, especially the book of Luke, which is the longest Gospel. Just read it and watch how Christ deals with people. And identify the different kinds of problems that are brought to him. What is his response One place, they try and push him off of a cliff, and just a few verses down, the people were amazed at his gracious words. Gracious words, and you're just about, they tried to kill you? I mean, most of us, if we were, you know, five minutes ago, someone was trying to kill us, we would be in a rage. We would be reacting. Now, Jesus, he was gracious even when someone was trying to murder him, throw him off of a cliff, get rid of him. Now, just read through the Gospels, and you're going to see an attitude of our Heavenly Father in the person of Jesus Christ. And I've often asked, I want to reflect Jesus Christ in that way to people. The most often statement that comes out of the office is this is the first place somebody cared and understood me. What does that mean? Someone is being loved and understood and cared for. Now, I have spiritual goals for people. I want people to mature. I want people to be a certain place. I want them to resolve their anger. I want them to resolve their depression. I want them to resolve their anxiety. But the way to get to doing that is by caring about them, not by pressuring them. Most people react to dominance and guilt. The second way people are damaged is to use God and the scriptures to attack, belittle, put people down, or shame them. Criticism creates the pain of rejection inside a person's heart. So when you criticize someone for doing something wrong, when you shame them, shame on you, what'd you do that for? When you shame them, you actually lock their heart against the resolution to the problem. Because one out of four people coming into my office has been rejected, criticized, put down. So if you use the scriptures to do the same thing, one-fourth of the people in your church are going to lock to that truth. If you use the scriptures to care about people, what's going to happen is they're going to respond to the truth. So we don't shame, we don't criticize, we don't belittle individuals but we communicate God's truth in love. I like what Paul says, communicating truth in love. Truth always needs to be um, meshed with love. When love becomes how you communicate and you put truth with love, people respond to that because you're caring about them. The third is to use God, the way people are damaged is to use God in scriptures as a standard of performance. Acceptance comes by performance. You need to perform at this level to be accepted. If you don't do this, you will be rejected. We will not accept you if you don't meet this expectation. One of the greatest problems, especially in conservative communities and conservative groups, is we have a set of rules. And those rules determined one's spirituality, where in reality the Bible doesn't give a list of rules for spirituality. The Bible gives a heart right with God. Spirituality is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, fruit of the Spirit, being reflected. That's spirituality. That's who you are being reflected Okay, but it's easy to put a list of rules in the place of that and when people don't follow the rules, then they're rejected. So what happens is the set of rules becomes whether I'm accepted or not accepted by God when in reality, I'm accepted by God because of who I am, not because of what I do. Now, um... I come from a Mennonite background and Mennonites and Amish are very disciplined people coming from Germany and I forget where the Amish came from, Um, Pennsylvania Dutch uh, from that Dutch background. You look in these communities and all the farmsteads are perfect. The barns are all painted. I came by one barn in the middle of the Amish community and it wasn't painted. Obviously, an Amish person doesn't live there. A Mennonite person doesn't live there anymore. Um, House hasn't been painted for 40 years, it was obvious. And the roof was caving in the house. Okay, discipline is not a sin. To be a perfectionist is not a sin. To be disciplined has a very positive part to it. But the problem is if we take that and we're disciplined and we expect people to be at a certain level and they don't meet that level and then they're rejected because they're not meeting that standard of whatever that standard is and it doesn't make any difference what it is. What happens is they feel rejected. So you have people saying, I'm not accepted. Therefore, God's not accepting me. Pretty soon, they stop praying. <clears throat> am I loved for who I am? Or am I loved for what I do? That's the difference between being loved for who I am and being loved for what I do. Instead of focusing on principle, principle we're focusing on um, not focusing on relationship. The fourth way we damage spiritually is to use God in the scriptures to set a standard the Bible never communicates. In other words, we make rules that the Bible never makes. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees added to the rules of scripture. And you damage people when you add rules that the Bible never shares. The fifth <clears throat> way we damage spiritually is to use God and scriptures to shun or withdraw from people emotionally. I've often said that the most painful thing you can do to a person is to shun, or excuse me, to reject instead of accept. Shun, to not look at a person, to not talk to that person, to shame, to, rege- to criticize them. And to separate yourself from them. That's the most damaging thing you can do. Now. The problem. um, Is that we need to use church discipline. But I often say to people. Have we cared for that person for three months? Before we discipline them for adultery. Now. Now. As I shared the other day, the biggest problem with people in moral failure, whether it's pornography, adultery, prostitution, whatever it is, is the fact that there is an emotional need not met, emotional pain not met, if the church leadership would care about those emotional needs, probably 80% of the people would turn from their sin. Now, the only ones you would discipline are the ones after three months of caring and understanding. If the person says, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm going to stay in adultery, then the church has to discipline. I have no problem with that. But we've got to care and understand that person's heart. Let me share an illustration. A number of years ago, a gentleman um, was very depressed And he went to his barn and took a rope and tied a noose on the rope and put a ladder up to the peak of his barn and um, tied the rope to the peak of his barn and was ready to climb the ladder to hang himself. And as he climbed up the ladder, he recognized his two daughters would find him there. And he couldn't stand that. So he climbed down the ladder, and in his depression, he walked into the living room, and his wife didn't know what to do, so she called, and he was placed in a mental hospital in Goshen, Indiana. He didn't uh, listen to anybody that was trying to put him on medication, and they tried to counsel him. He wouldn't listen. And um, they took him home. He was severely depressed and suicidal. He wouldn't talk to anybody. Two weeks later, he was in my office. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a severely depressed person in your office, but they're very difficult to counsel. So here he and his wife were sitting there in my office, and he was looking to the floor. He wouldn't look at me. And I didn't know what to do with him. He had an Amish background, raised in an Amish church, and I didn't know what his problem was. His wife was very quiet, just sitting there. I don't know if you've been a counselor and no one talks to you. (laughs) It's kind of an awkward situation. I'm 1% expressive, so I don't know what to say either. So I didn't know what to say. So I turned to him and I said, "Um, you know, I've had the opportunity of counseling hundreds of Mennonite people. I've had the opportunity of counseling probably 50 Amish couples. And one of the problems in our culture, and I put myself in that culture because I was a person affected by the same thing, Uh, in the first three years, the spirit of a child is broken and the father and the mother often use just their eyes to communicate rejection and the child's spirit is broken in that culture. And the child begins to feel rejected earlier in life and doesn't feel acceptance. And because of the high performance, they have to perform and um, they can't achieve because every time they do something, they're criticized. But there's another dynamic to this culture and the Mennonite culture never praises a child. So you never know if you did it good enough because praise leads to crying, so parents never praise their children. And I shared the fact that I wasn't praised, and my father used the breaking of the spirit in our home with his anger. And um, I said that led to a 20-year depression for me. And then I shared that in the Amish circles, of, often at age 16, the young people become rebellious and do things that are wrong. and go out and drink and um, get immoral, and for two hours I talk like this, and I shared that I had sought to care about that culture, the group of people, because a lot of times what happens when they rebel all of a sudden, the church disciplines them, they 're shunned and shamed, then the community disciplines them, and I shared some stories. He was looking down for two hours. Never saw his face. After two hours, he looked up and says, How do you know all that about me? I said, I don't. I don't even know anything about you. He said, You just told my story. Except my story was different. I ran away from home at 16, went to Chicago and raised horses. And I got involved in prostitution, and the prostitutes took all of my money. I got angry, and I came home. Married the bishop's daughter, and I tried to follow all the rules, but he didn't know he was rebellious inside because of what had happened with that whole thing and never resolved it. And he says, I ran away from home, spent all my money, and I came back. And I settled down, and I joined the church. But I didn't like the rules, and I started reacting to the rules. And I was disciplined, and pretty soon the bishop didn't talk to me. My wife's father didn't talk to me. Pretty soon everybody didn't talk to me, and I was rejected. He says, I've lived all my life by myself. No one's ever accepted or cared about me. And he says, I've only had one friend. It's the man in town who lives with a prostitute and the church is telling me I shouldn't be his friend, but he's the only one who'll talk to me in town. I said, would you forgive me for all the believers who've turned their backs on you and not cared about your heart? I'd like to care. I'd like to be your first friend. I've never been with a prostitute. I've never committed adultery. I've never opened a Playboy. I don't even know what that stuff is. But I want to care about your heart. I want to love you. And I want to give you the acceptance and understanding no one's ever given you. I wish I would have been there when you were 16 and you were contemplating taking off and racing horses in Chicago. I wish I would have been there to care about your heart. But I didn't know you then. All of a sudden I saw a man start to weep. His wife saw him weeping and she looked at him crying and he had never cried before. And I said, I'd like to start caring about your heart and understanding your pain. Do you realize you have only one friend and everyone else has turned their back on you? I let him in a prayer, Jesus, are you like the bishop? Are you different? How are you different? I let God prompt that. I, I don't tell people how, who God is. And I forget the picture he got of Jesus, caring Jesus. Do you reject me like everyone else is, has done or do you accept me? You see, I have a belief system inside that every sin can be confessed. Every issue can be resolved with God. And I just love this man. And I cared for one week, three hours a day. What happened in that first session after his head was on the floor for two hours... I ask his wife, would you like to care about your husband? He said, she says, I don't, I've never known how to help him with his depression. I, he's always been depressed, and I don't know what to do with him. And I says, you mind if I share with you how to help him? The opposite of rejection is acceptance. This man has never been accepted by anyone. From age three on, his heart died. Because he's been rejected all the way through. Nobody's ever understood him. And I had her look in his eyes and say, what if I'm the first person to make you feel special, to care about your heart? And I got her to start caring about his heart. All of a sudden, he starts smiling. She got so excited, I realized she wanted to emotionally respond. And I says, um, do you mind if I step out of the room? I didn't know Amish women could do this. They're very good at it. In fact, this isn't the only one that's ever done it. Amish women inside move when you show them what to do. They don't. And I stepped out of the room, and I have an intern room where there's cameras in my room, and it goes to screens in the other room. As soon as I stepped out, she jumped into his lap. She wrapped her arms around him, and she started caring about his heart, and the guy lost his depression in that one session. <clears throat> Two years later there's more to the story I had to work through all that pain. Two years later, he and his wife drove from Indiana all the way to Colorado to take my wife and I out to eat, just to tell us thank you. That's a long ways. I don't know if I'd go that far, I'd probably get on the phone. they drove all the way out there to say thank you. Why? because someone understood and cared about their heart what they're struggling with now if the church took the 16-year-old young people that are struggling with whatever spiritually and says can we care about your heart can we care about what you're struggling with we we just want you to feel loved you know what's going to happen those young people are going to stay in the church because they feel loved Saturday, we have the opportunity of having a singles, you know, six-hour thing. Uh, Last year, we had 375 Amish Mennonite young people there, and I had six hours to talk to them about how to prepare for marriage, how to resolve these issues before, rather than running away and doing bed courtship and all these things that people do. What if you found a person that you wanted to marry and you cared about their hearts and they cared about your hearts and we resolved the spiritual issues, we resolved the emotional issues, and we just cared about each other? What would your marriage be like? What would your church be like? I'm excited. Because when you take the biblical principles of caring for people's hearts... Into the church, and if the leadership, the pastors, take those principles and start caring, what's going to happen is the church is going to grow. Because people are cared for, and that's going to attract people. What are the consequences of being damaged spiritually? <clears throat> we were supposed to quit 10 minutes ago, weren't we? I'm sorry. Um,. I'll just hurry up and wrap this all up in a couple minutes. I got carried away with my stories. My wife warns me about that. When a person is spiritually abused, they can't connect emotionally with God. They can't pray. You'd be shocked at how many people can't pray. They will disassociate whenever they read the Bible. I have people that read the Bible, and after they read the Bible, they know nothing about what they read. That's disassociation. I have people come into my office from all kinds of church backgrounds and they can't pray. I lead them in a prayer and everything is emotionally disconnected. People can't listen to messages because the message is communicated in a critical way. And they make comments um, about their pain and they react. And you'll see people having harsh thoughts. God is harsh. God cannot love me. God is unloving. I'm too bad for God to love me. I can't trust God. Uh, He has no reason to love me. God doesn't hear my prayer. God cares about everyone else. God is never there when I need him. He's going to send me to hell. On and on and on. You hear these statements. It's all because of pain inside. What is the prayer to resolve the spiritual damage of spiritual abuse? I use this prayer often. Jesus, are you like... My father, who was angry and dominant and perfectionist, or are you different? How are you different? Are you like my pastor, who preached sermons, criticizing and rejecting and attacking from the pulpit? Or are you different? How are you different? And you go through and resolve each of those issues. What happens is they see Jesus different than the person who damaged them. And I've had people go home that evening and pray nonstop that evening. They're just talking to Jesus all the time because their pain is gone. Here's a prayer. Jesus, I was damaged by a pastor who constantly used his message to cause me to feel that God rejects me if I didn't measure up. What did that do to my heart? Jesus, do you care that I can't pray or read the word of God without emotionally blocking my ability to respond to you? What kind of relationship do you want with me? Do you want me to perform or do you want me to feel love for who I am? Do you love me? Jesus, are you like my pastor or are you different? How are you different? Can you heal my heart? Now that prayer is in this book. So if you are looking for that prayer, all of this material is in this, in this book in outline form. Then you get the spouse to start caring about that. I want to make a safe place where you can come with me and feel totally safe to connect emotionally with the Lord. And I'm not going to read all those. You can get them in the book if you'd like. The key is to realize that a couple needs to have a relationship with each other and each husband and wife needs to have a relationship with God. But often there's a barrier, there's a block with a person who's spiritually abused And they can't pray, they can't read the word, they can't listen to a message. I've had people that every time they walk into church, they disassociate because of the pain of being spiritually abused. I have people, every time they open the Bible, they block. I have people, and I say, do you pray? You know, it's kind of a weird question to ask. (laughs) Do you ever pray? And they say, I haven't prayed since I was 16. So I say, what happened at 16? 16. There are four ways to heal a damaged heart from abuse. The first is to hold and ask, can I have your pain? The Amish man that came into my office who's going to kill himself, I just says, can I have your pain today? Do you realize everybody's rejected you all of your life since you were three? I exaggerated that. And I want to be the first person to give you total acceptance. I want to love you in a way you've never been loved before. He didn't know what to do with me. He had never heard those words. I just cared. The second is to lead them in a prayer uh, to forgive the people who damage them. The third is to lead them in a we prayer. That's where you pray for them or a wife prays for them. They don't respond. Jesus, um, Jim was damaged by causing him to feel. Jesus, what did that do to his heart? How would you bring peace? The last is where you lead him in a prayer and they follow you. The Amish man, I says, why don't you just follow me and I'll lead you. So I led him in a prayer. Jesus, I was really damaged as a child by causing me to feel and I go through that prayer and the prayers are in the book if you'd like to follow those. The Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Can I encourage those of you that have spiritual leadership roles? Would you care for people? Spiritually, emotionally, people in sin, care for them. Because love covers a multitude of problems. And when you care, you're going to get the greatest response. And that's the method Jesus used. Thank you very much for your patience. I apologize for going over time. You're dismissed for lunch.